nothing ontological oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard. With me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. I think, therefore I am. Even the uninitiated have heard this philosophical quote, but what many don't realize is what led up to this moment, or what transpired afterwards. Indeed, many may not even realize that this quote, and the apparently unshakable knowledge it holds, is actually dated and very much up for debate. But how can this be? You're listening to this podcast, thinking, being, surely that means you exist, right? Some would say yes, and some would say no. Today we're looking at different flavors of skepticism. Hmm. All right, so we changed our uh, intro a little bit. Um, I'm no longer a, a graduate student in education. Yeah, I've, noticed. <laughs> I've gotten my, my master's degree. Um, I may move on to other things in the future, but for now, I'm just a, a regular again. Joe. <laughs> no, you're never regular Joe. <laughs> just, you've just ascended that next pinnacle, and now you're taking in the view. Right. <laughs> Before going on to the next one. Yes. <laughs> um, so skepticism, let's jump right into it. Um, can you explain for us the difference between ordinary skepticism and philosophical skepticism? There's a relationship. Uh, the skepticism philosophically at its start was essentially questioning um, the reliability of knowledge claims. Where it gets philosophically extreme is way back pre-Socratic, uh, pre, yeah, pre-Socratic times. It's questioning the possibility of knowing anything at all, and therefore even questioning whether one exists. And then the various flavors of that move all the way up through to, as you say, Descartes, um, with different with different results. So in, in the earliest, we have uh, Heraclitus talking uh, about you can't put your foot in the same river twice. And then a little bit later, uh, Cratylus, Plato did a dialogue with Cratylus, who was a philosopher who suggested you can't even put your foot in the same river once <laughs> because everything is always changing. Even then, realizing that the human form is changing, one's mind's changing, the water is changing. And there, that's where the extremist part began. Okay. So let's break down what it takes to, um, to have skepticism or to have, um, I guess what the antithesis of skepticism would be, which would be knowledge, you think? Oh, the antithesis of skepticism. I no. I I've, I don't think I would say knowledge. It would. It's more likely faith. Okay. So yeah. So that's an interesting thing when we're looking at skepticism. Um, in doing research, they said that the first thing um, that you can't have to have skepticism is belief. You can't believe in something and also be skeptical. Mm. Do you think? Do you think that's true? Is there any way around that? The, the, well, uh, Saint Augustine would uh, said that there was a way around it, saying that you essentially just terribly paraphrasing, but boiling it down, not even paraphrasing, summarizing. Faith is the only answer when all of your knowledge claims uh, disintegrate. So yeah, I don't think I, I don't think so. I think if, if now the extreme skeptic uh, verging toward the uh, nihilist, perhaps might say, nope, there, nothing can exist because we can't prove that anything exists, but. Many, including, and even Descartes, who was, was wrestling, wrestling, trying to figure out how do I justify the existence of God, in, of which I believe in, and at the same time not knowing anything, and then realizing that cogito ergo sum essentially means God created me, and therefore I can trust that I exist. Hmm. So it's sort of a cheat. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so no, I, I I don't think that I think the faith is or things such as faith 
are the opposite. Yeah, so I'm still I'm still thinking about that belief and and skepticism, right? So believing if you believe in something, um, can you be skeptical? Um, you can put yourself into a skeptical position. And I and I wouldn't say that belief and believing in something is necessarily the same thing as faith, right? But the one uh, suggests an active attempt towards something. I believe. I Mulder. I want to believe. Right? <laughs> and so there's that. But I but I think that that when you if you are a person of faith, let's say, then you allow yourself, I would say sometimes unduly or without justification, to be skeptical about other things, such as science. <laughs> Maybe what will help clear it up is if we establish if there is a difference between being skeptical and questioning. Is there like an attitudinal difference between these two, or are they essentially the same thing? Because I think that would kind of determine whether or not you can both believe and be skeptical. There, skepticism implies a theory or an organized uh, discipline, an attitudinal consistency in your approach to knowledge. Questioning, which is what uh, you're going to laugh with, but this is, uh, it's actually uh, Socrates that's how we're supposed to pronounce it. That's it. We all say Socrates to because we just give up the academic knowledge, right? But, but the Socratic method is to question, but not assuming that there's not the possibility of gaining knowledge. Extreme skepticism, which seems to suggest that we should give up on this idea of being able to have knowledge. Skepticism, not of the extreme kind, is a disciplined approach to questioning what seems to be there. And, and then we have, and we're jumping all over the time scale, but then we have Hegel and Heidegger who both, in their various ways, were saying pretty much what you need to do is to have a provisional kind of approach, which is to say, well, this is what we seem to know, but it is likely to change. And we head more to the inductive. In other words, uh, the, various ways of saying this, uh, both Hegel, uh, Hegel and Heidegger, was that you can have preconceptions about things, but preconceptions that take us into the negative and take us into the destructive are to be abandoned. Preconceptions that, that are the, we operate from some preconceptions always, they would say because we can't have all knowledge and, and we don't have all the experience in the world. So we operate under things that we have been told. We test them. They seem to make sense. And if those things then lead us on to better things, then they are of, of worth. So there's, they would say we, we have preconceptions. Those preconceptions may have some questionable basis. But where do those preconceptions take us as we continue to question? That's the intentional, the what's the intent, that kind of question. Gotcha. Okay. So, yeah, just before we move on, so it would probably be accurate to say if you have a belief, um, let's say I believe that the earth is round, right? Hmm. I cannot be skeptical about that belief, but I can question that belief. I can hold that I believe that the earth is round and question it, but I can't hold that the earth I can't hold the belief that the earth is round and be skeptical about it at the same time. Right? Yes, I would I would say that. Okay. And and and, the, and then to follow what we said before using your example, the belief was that the earth was round, but then the questioning of it leads to well, it's not quite It's an oblate spheroid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> See? Right. Yeah, so um and that's an important distinction, especially when we start, you know, putting a critical eye towards um, our, the current times we live in, right? Yes. Um, because 
when you when you look at specific scenarios and you start to see people um, distrusting science, for instance, right? Um, you have people that say, okay, well, you know, let's take uh, QAnon, right? So if you have people that are saying, well, you know, th- the government's actually controlled by this and, and you know, Trump's going to be put back in office on January 4th, January 18th, February 4th, <laughs> March 3rd, March 18th, and it never happens, right? Yeah. Um, then that seems pretty, pretty ridiculous, right? But then if you think about it, you know, from a, from a sort of objective term and you, you look at scientists who say, well, the earth is 12 billion years old, 14 billion years old, 13 billion years old. Mm-hmm. Some people might say, well, what's the difference? Mm. But the difference is being questioning versus skepticism, right? There's, there's sort of, yes. you have, like you said, you have preconceived notions. You have a structured way of approaching something. And then really, you're asking questions to define parameters of what is known versus trying to just sort of reinvent the wheel or spout off this is this is foundational so important because what you just described with the the age of the earth is a constant questioning using measurements taking new findings to bolster and poke at the theory And, and the theory holds we're ancient we're really ancient so one billion years difference in the scheme of 14 or 15 billion years isn't all so much so so for those who claim that uh trump would come back <laughs> in uh march 4th uh march 20th uh uh on and on what's your evidence the only evidence is the word of mouth supposedly of somebody who calls himself q for q and and those words are somehow Supposed to be taken as uh, a cult-like, absolutely ver- uh, verifiable. Except they're not verifiable. Somebody said them, but so what? Where's the evidence? Where do you, you know? And so that's that's where it falls apart, right? So I, you know, I think that's why people get frustrated with science and why some people would see it as being, you know, a sham. But in reality, you know, you have to accept what you said at the at the beginning is that these knowing things having knowledge is a very elusive thing and it's really something that is a constant process of being built rather than a static concrete commodity Mm -hmm. and so um you know when you the cdc right stay six feet apart stay three feet apart mask double mask do you know it goes back and forth people say oh well this just proves that they don't know what they're talking about and the whole thing's a sham right but no really (laughs) there's new evidence coming to light about how the virus lives on surfaces how it attaches to cells how it does these different things we're talking about three feet for a certain age group under right. certain conditions yeah. that are controlled conditions. And these are things that we'll talk about as we get further, right? Because yeah. um, there's people talk about skepticism and, and contextual factors. Um, but I think what we're leading into right now is the second sort of condition of skepticism. Um, you know, we talked about belief and the role that that plays. The next part is justification, yeah. right? Yeah. So um, justification of knowledge, how, what kind of role does that play in that, that sort of cons- – you know, const- uh, structured theory of skepticism. It plays a very important role in any any number of venues. So let's take something like justice. Let's assume that we think we know what justice means, and most everyone has a slightly canted version of what that might mean. For some, it's vengeance. For some, it's, you know, along the whole spectrum. So, but in our justice system in this country, you are innocent until proven guilty, it is said. And a body of evidence has to be built up to convince a a juror or jury that there is guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. There's your skepticism. Reasonable doubt is a very. If anyone has ever read Twelve Angry Men or different or seen versions of this, it, it's a marvelous, discursive example of, of of skepticism at work. And what we see is that people often don't. Thinking is very hard. 
it requires work. <laughs> and, and so the people who just want to get out of the jury room or people who are angry because they got put there in the first place uh, are unlikely to want to spend time thinking about a case. They're often already decided what the case will be before they walk into the room. Sometimes they tell the, the people who are selecting the jurors, maybe they have a reason and say, oh, no, I'm open-minded. And that's why questions happen about the choices of jurors. So that's just one example. So, so you, you, to try to justify one's belief requires, in some systems, presenting evidence uh, ex examining the evidence and, and examining in the context of previous evidence and examining the possible intentions of the presentation of the evidence. It's all those things we learn about or should be teaching about, and some of us do, about uh, searching the internet. Uh, an academic journal is much more knowledgeable than somebody putting something up on Facebook just because they want to see something. And if you can't determine the difference between those two things because you just want to believe that thing that you see on Facebook, you're not going to arrive at, at good knowledge or, or justifiable knowledge. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's it, it you, we're surrounded by it in society. And that's why, you know, talking about authority like we did last week, yeah. you realize that culture <clears throat> imposes a large part of authority culture is in a sense subjectivity it's an inherent subjectivity that you have a very hard time shedding if you are been immersed in this culture your entire life then you miss things and it's we see it all over the place um a good example for this would be um you know i wanted to put on some muscle over over quarantine right and so you see they have the you know magazines and and websites everywhere for these things and you know, they're trying to do stuff. Well, I have, I've never gone there, right? So I'm going through, I'm looking at articles that end in, you know, websites that end in EDU, right? Mm -hmm. Or GOV. Yeah. And looking at studies. And some of them are very boring. And most of them are based around elderly people or people with um, uh, muscle, you know, atrophy. And, you know, and, and you think to yourself, well, is this something that's really going to apply to, you know, a, a healthy 30-something-year-old guy? So, but it's scientifically researched and a lot of what they say kind of flies in the face of some of those other things, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, I was able to, I was able to put on, you know, six pounds, uh, and it worked out pretty well. And then I read an interview with a guy who used to write articles for some of these magazines. And he said, no, they actually, he's like, we write stuff that is bad advice in order to sell you supplements that don't work in order to get you to keep coming back to try exactly. to get more advice. Exactly. Right? You know? yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's where you're, how you're determining what knowledge is, is, um, is a complicated thing. And that, the role that culture plays is hugely important. I was reading just recently, um, an anecdote from a guy who, um, runs a company with, a another woman, and um she went on vacation and he he'd always thought that he was much better at his job than she was um because you know he had he got through more accounts he he had po more positive responses that sort of thing so the woman goes on vacation um and he's dealing with this customer that he's dealt with many times before and all of a sudden like it's just it's not working the customer is questioning everything that he's saying and doing all this you know, arguing and, and talking about not renewing their business and stuff. And all of a sudden the guy realizes that he had been emailing the customer from the woman's account while she had been out. <laughs> so when she came back, they did an experiment where they switched accounts and they ran that way for a week. And what they found is that she had the exact same results that he had. And he had the exact same results that she had when people were dealing with people who they thought were of the opposite gender, they reacted a different way. <laughs> and there's been many, um, studies of with resumes, right? You put on an ethnic name on a resume, um, the exact same resume as a resume with a white name. People will see it differently. Right. They always, you know, that's the influence of culture justifying knowledge. And it's interesting because the evidence for the knowledge can be the same in all of these scenarios, but the justification is different based on 
preconceptions, not anything that has any sort of systematic or structural integrity. Of yes, any kind. it's the preconceptions that can get in the way. So that's an extremely long sort of thing, but it's just to demonstrate the importance of examining these sort of core beliefs and core conceptions that we have about how we form um, or how we determine what we know. Hmm. So speaking in that vein, let's let's head on a little bit and talk about what separates Cartesian skepticism from Peronian skepticism. Did I say that right? You did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> The, one of the differences, at least in my thinking and reading, is that Cartesian skepticism is focused more on the idea of identity, whereas uh, Peronian and pre-Socratic work was focused more on knowledge itself the what what can be reliably determined so I, I for me that's where it becomes more interesting the mind body problem the dualistic thing of, of, of cartesian work uh, ultimately it's about do i exist or don't i mm. and cogito ergo sum i think therefore i am is the basis then of going on to the other justifications as it were so that's yeah i think so i think that's it okay so yeah that peronian skepticism that that sort of leads down the road of um you know what we've what we have been sort of uh referring to throughout the episode which is this idea that um almost it's it's the question is there such a thing as knowledge can you know anything yeah that's that's the basis of it <laughs> So, what did what did Hume and Kant Kant add to the the discussion here? To be simplistic, I think they opened up new degrees of application and possibility. And that sounds general, too generalist, but I think that you start with. Hume and Kant thinking about knowledge in a more human universal sense. And you start getting into the application of skepticism to the idea of ethics. Mm. And, and the fusion of that just it takes it far away from the pre-Socratic work. So yeah. So with Hume, the thing that stuck out to, to me about that, and we before we started recording, we were kind of talking about something similar. All right. So we were talking about past episodes where my one cat showed up on the, the recording with her, her jingly bell and her, her meowing. Yep. And um, how if you're listening to the podcast just on your own, all of a sudden you hear that. And I start, one, you know, wondering in my present timeline oh where's the cat right Where, where's the cat where's the cat but the cat's on the podcast recording so yep. hume was sort of of the persuasion that we would be peronian skeptics if our own human nature didn't stand in the way of making it so in other words our sort of metacognition our ability to think about our own thinking um tells us that it, it, it kind of tells us we're special right or we're, we're different that the that we we exist in some way um that can't be questioned mm -hmm. right um and kant sort of went against that right he he sort of thought well the very i the very notion that we have sort of um ideas of morality makes that argument not 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 nonsensical but um problematic yeah yeah because in kantian terms you know we've talked about Kant before it's not it's not like i don't heroify some of these folks they were human beings but they were fascinating they had messy lives and they and this is often the criticism of philosophers well, yeah well david hume uh, might have been brilliant but he also didn't treat his family well and so on i've, I've mm -hmm. heard this from various people oh okay so 
we can accept the <laughs> the messiness of certain people who are in great authority and yet not and then not accept others. That's a strange thing in itself. But but Kant was looking for the larger applicability of 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 morality. <laughs> the it's not as it's not as simple as that kind of uh, approach. So that you maybe honoring your parent is cross all cultures, but on the surface of it, it might not seem that way. Mm. And so you have to look at experience and determine whether that experience may actually point to an ethical position that you wouldn't have noted if you hadn't thought about it really hard. Another way of going about this is to think about it was in Hume's case, but in really in, in most philosophy. If we look at the fact, the I say the fact that if we look at the recognizable practice of anchoring much of our worldview in mythology and metaphor. We are metaphorical creatures. We couldn't communicate without metaphor, really. Then we are never going to be as accurate as we might potentially like because metaphor and mythology, not myth as in falsehood, not the current tripe, but the, the, but the idea of stories. Those tell us many things about ourselves, but they are not always precise and acutely accurate. Hmm. Yeah, and so uh, I I don't have much evidence to back this up, right? But I I would assume that you have Hume, you have Kant, um, and think about the existential philosophers, right? You have Kierkegaard. Um, who uh, who was the other uh, famous Camus, absurdist? Sartre. Oh well, absurd. I mean, Ibsen was with his plays and so on. But uh, so yeah, so let, if we look at existentialism, you have Kierkegaard, and then you have the absurdists, and they are sort of. They're part of existential philosophy, but they're almost opposing in their viewpoints, right? Because Kierkegaard subscribes to um, a Christian viewpoint. The absurdists say there is no meaning. That's the only way to explain everything is that none of it has any meaning. So probably Kierkegaard and Kant might line up a little bit. And the absurdist might line up with Hume a little bit. So there's there's almost a division appearing here, right? In how how we apply skepticism, and those two viewpoints tend to be, if to way overly simplify it, when it comes to being skeptical, you're either saying it's impossible to know anything, or God is responsible for it, or you know, there's or, or it's possible to know some things, but provisionally, right? So there's that in between space. Mm -hmm. So it's how you apply it is different, but the idea of the value of it seems to be consistent, right? So where do you, where do you fall on this timeline? Who do you? <laughs> I'll answer that if you will. Okay, so right now at this time in my life. I think that I'm probably, you know, you, you, you get older, you study, you've had an entire academic career, you, not, not career, a, a practice, an academic practice. And practice means constantly learning new things. My wife and I were having this marvelous discussion last night. We both are reading. We're both ink drinkers. So there's a, there's a term in it's a Venezuelan culture. I don't remember where it comes from, but there, uh, there are different words for bookworms. Well, I like ink drinkers. Yeah, I think cool. ink, ink drinkers are cool. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, and she's reading this terrific book on Greek culture. Now, it's partly poetry, partly historical uh, fragments, partly creative fiction based on the presentation of a fragment. And that just stirs up the, the, the pot, so to speak. It's just so, such a stew, such a wonderful stew. And I was reading a poet, uh, poem in the current issue of Philosophy Now that is about the Greeks and what they offered us and what they messed up. <laughs> and so we were reading these things back and forth, and, and then we got onto something else. I said, you know, I've been reading this marvelously interesting book on black history called The 400 Souls. And there are 80 different essayists of, of renown 
talking. But up until that moment of reading that first essay, I did not know that on August 20th, 1620, a ship called the White Lion brought to the Virginia colony the first recognized shipment of people who had been enslaved. And and the essay was about, in the very next year, at about the same date, the Mayflower arrives. So we have two ship stories within the space of 365 days, and we created the entire culture based on the mythology of the Mayflower, the deification of the pilgrims. When all this other stuff had been the, the horror and the and the pain and the suffering that generated this this kind of that this country would not have been generated without this, we ignore the story, and thus we ignore knowledge, and we do not come to terms with knowledge. And so, for me, to answer your question a long way around is that I am ever skeptical of triumphalism exceptionalism and the notion that by golly we're just better than everybody else because why <laughs> because we live within a certain set of borders and we're white no i don't think so and and to continue to learn just points out as socrates said <laughs> i know nothing right but i keep learning more and so for me, skepticism isn't about constantly being looking negatively at things. I think skepticism is an extremely positive thing because if you can say, I didn't know that, and you can look at where the sources were and look at the bibliography and say, okay, I accept the justification of this from an academic viewpoint. It resonates in a human way, and I need to rethink even more. Right. Yeah, that was great. Uh, that was a great explanation. I like, I think you said something in there that really struck with me, which was, um, I know nothing, yet I'm always learning more. Yeah. Isn't that interesting, <laughs> right? But I think that that kind of encapsulates sort of my viewpoint on it too, right? Which is that, um, you know, when trying to, it seems like to say that we can never know anything um, seems overly critical, right? Overly negative. There's something about it that doesn't quite ring true, but also to try to um, come up with uh, these sort of um, stock, unquestionable um, paradigms from which to establish knowledge seems equally uh, as a cop-out, right? Mm -hmm. And if you, I, I kind of look at, at nature, right? So to me, as long as there's mystery, as long as there's a mystery of some kind, I think that there's going to be um, continual questioning, right? But that doesn't change the fact that some things are sort of knowable. So, you know, you look at, at space, right? And it's like, okay, well, we don't know if it ends or if it doesn't end, or if it wraps back around on itself, or what's going on. <laughs> or, um, you know, Heraclitus with, with the stream, right? Well, you can set a step in the same stream twice, but at the same time, you also can't, right? <laughs> there's, so there's all these, different, all these different questions, all these different things. And to me, it seems like, okay, um, you can. I think that... You can know something, but the, like we were talking about before with science, it's this, it is this ever-evolving thing. It's not a negative it's, it's thing. Inductive. It's inductive. Right. Yeah. You know, there's, there's things that you have, there's, they have a, there's a form, right? And you're constantly questioning and, and refining them, and they're, they're just sort of shape-shifting a little bit, right? But they're there. I think, you know, there's, there's something there, you know? And so you might float down the stream and, you know, Maybe it's the same stream, or maybe all the water's different, so it's not the same stream. Um, but there's rocks in that stream, right, that are always there. <laughs> mm -hmm. And the rocks might be getting eroded, so maybe they're not the same rocks, but there's something there, right? And so I, it's just sort of extrapolating out that idea, you know, something as simple as a stream. Um, 
can raise these questions of, well, is it the same stream? Is it a different stream? But the fact of the matter is the stream is there, but it's changing, you know, and it's existence is change. So trying to establish static, concrete knowledge may be impossible, but that doesn't mean that knowledge itself doesn't exist. It's well just said. something that's evolving. Right? Well said. Well said. You, 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 I'm going back to Cradalus, who said we can't even step in the same stream once because the stream is changing even as our toe hits it, then when the foot goes in and so on. But he also took the under, interestingly extreme position that communication, because human beings change, because words change, because words are uttered before they're even heard by the other person being talked to, the thought has changed in the mind of the person who's talking, and therefore communication can't really happen. So the the, the story is that whenever anybody talked to him, at one point he just stopped talking altogether and he just wiggled his little finger to say, I've heard you. Hmm. Because he didn't believe communication was possible. I don't find that a particularly useful. Right. <laughs> I, it, it certainly was a prefacing of all of the ideas of language and communication, some of which we've talked about across these podcasts in the, the late 20th century and early and 21st century about the difficulties of words and understanding their meaning and, and having multiple definitions which slide around. But if we stop attempting communication, then, then our skepticism has led us into an utter dead end where we might feel completely justified in our own beliefs always, constantly, and we'll surround ourselves with other people who do, but we won't get anywhere. Mm. Clearly, that's what's happened to us. And I, I don't think we're anywhere near out of that water. However, that water is changing. Right. So... Yeah, that's um, that's really funny, and it raises this this kind of big question, right? So, if if we're looking at it, you know, I I, I just gave the examples in nature, right, of, yes. of the stream or of outer space or yeah. language, right? Language, we have this thing that you know we're we're communicating, we're saying something. But what's being said changes, right? Because the meanings of the words across languages might not be the same. Yes. The meanings that I ascribe to a word might not be the same meaning that you ascribe to the same word, all these different things. Do you think that this um, inherent nature of knowledge, do you think that's built into the universe or it's <laughs> just built into humans? That's a really fascinating question because... I, because language <laughs> uh, built in suggests a builder. And, and for me, there's no, as yet, justificatory material that would show me that there was a, a design. Uh, so I, I don't I don't need to accept a builder design, but I follow your analogy, you see. And that's what we were talking about before, the idea of analogy. If it is evolved in if or built in organically developed however it may be then i don't think we don't have anything to go on yet except human capacities we're studying other animals we haven't discovered life anywhere else yet and therefore i think it's human centric until we encounter a completely different life form and wrestle for centuries, if ever, to try to understand the language, because we're unlikely to have a Star Trek translator, which is, you know, it's like, oh, so that's what she said. Okay. Wouldn't that be nice? Google on steroids. <laughs> I don't see how we get past the human centric, which is not to say we're the most important thing. I think uh, Pete uh, Singer and other ethical ethics philosophers have, have pointed this out to us that we aren't necessarily the most important thing on the planet that's probably gotten us in a great deal of difficulty in itself yet we struggle to understand ourselves and we need to struggle to understand ourselves before we cast ourselves out and make even more generalizations about the entire universe we need to study the universe we need to study ourselves and that we haven't learned enough nearly yet 
Yeah, that's um. So that's the thing is I'm looking, and this is uh, this is sort of off track with skepticism, but I think in terms of philosophy, it's like <laughs> one of the biggest questions you can ask, right? Mm-hmm. Are these these things that we find so weird? Well, you know, does space end or does it go on forever or does it bend back on itself? You know, is a stream really a stream or is it never the same thing? Is, you know, all these different questions. So do you think that the reason we perceive these problems as being problems is because of our own human perspective, right? Yes, I think so. So if that's the case, then you believe that the universe itself is knowable, perhaps not by humans, but it is possible to know <laughs> to know things, some to I know think, everything. Essentially, uh, well, I, I don't. <laughs> we have an AI, right? This is our question from last week it with is. authority. Yes. If you have the AI that can, you know, see all wavelengths of light. Yeah. hear all sounds you yeah. know see all uh you know every it can pick up on every single possible measurement in the universe would we then be able to answer uh, the question of well, what is the universe what is what is life what is the meaning of things you know arthur c clark did a wonderful short story about this way back in the 60s but i i no, because the ai cannot suffuse the universe uh, if the universe is infinite the AI cannot know all about the universe, and therefore it's not all-knowable. There can be a pocket universe over here that has completely different rules. If you pop into that universe, you may not be able to come back out. One of these bubbly, uh, quantum, effervescent universes that are talked about so frequently by uh, physicists. All right. No, it's not completely knowable. Does that mean we shouldn't try to know? No, because we need to. I mean, the idea of the changing river, the skepticism is, well, I can't know everything about this river. No, probably not. But you can know if the chemical properties of that river are changing, and then you can ask, why are they changing? And if it points to some pollutant that's happening upstream somewhere, then that's an addressable bit of knowledge that could potentially be changed or or applied and then changes made, which will then change the river again. (laughs) Right. So if if mystery and mystique Mm -hmm. are an essential component of the universe, then it's not merely our human subjectivity that makes things unknowable. Um, That adds to it. But the universe itself is in some ways unknowable. In some ways, currently. <laughs> Regardless of human uh, of human thought. Hmm, okay. Like, like I said, that does, has nothing to do with skepticism. I was mostly <laughs> just asking questions. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I mean, it kind of leads us into my next question here, right? Um, which is, why are we hardwired to both believe and be skeptical? All right, I'm going to venture this. Then, the, if there's such a thing as human nature, and that's questioned as well, if we are hardwired, then there is a use potentially for both things. And so we look at the idea of belief, and we look at the idea of skepticism. And well, what what is the potential use of both of those things? So I toss that to you. What is the potential use of being skeptical? Well, I think that you know, if you look at it from a utilitarian, well, you know, from a human utility standpoint, right? Mm-hmm. It probably is beneficial. Um, we talked about it. Uh, I can't remember how many weeks ago it was, but humans and Neanderthals, right? Mm-hmm. I watched the mm-hmm. episode and, you know, mm-hmm. they showed the tools from over the span of like 10,000 years. Right. Right. Now, human tools evolved and the Neanderthal tools stayed the same. Well, if you're not skeptical, you're probably going to continue to do the same things the same ways. And that is not um, evolutionarily advantageous, right? Because with limited resources and a, a world that's constantly changing, you have to adjust your approaches to things. And so skepticism, I think, is what drives 
change. If, if you don't have a questioning attitude, then you will just continue to always do things the same way, mm-hmm. which will result in extinction. <laughs> so if I you think, always do what you always did, you always get what you always got. That's one of those truisms that right. we hear. But that's not even necessarily true, right? Because you could be successful with those things until you run out of the resource, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and that's what happened to the Neanderthals, right? Well, I use this stone spear to kill this woolly rhinoceros until the woolly rhinoceros is gone. And then that stone spear doesn't work on a faster animal as well. And if you don't develop a faster implement, then you can't hunt new food and you die. Well done. Now, bring it down right to ground zero because I'm thinking of addressing we you look at some of the comments that that we get on our podcast and somebody was just incensed or or just I wish I'll never get that hour back where I listen to two guys (laughs) 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 blowing smoke all right well yes you will because you can stop doing some other other, uh, lays around watching Netflix for an hour and then you got your hour back go outside and get some air (laughs) you know but, but that's doing something different than your normal procedure uh, thinking is hard. And yes, philosophy is not blowing smoke. It is, but it is playful. So, but let's get, without having to release any secrets that you're not supposed to talk about in your, where you work, do you apply skepticism where you work? Yeah. Um, and it, I'd say it comes in the um, form of continual improvement, right? All companies do this. You have a continual improvement um, system and you have a goal. You want to have 20 continual improvement ideas in a year, say, right? So what that says is that operates from an attitude of skepticism. You're saying we are not doing things in an optimal, efficient manner somewhere. So you need to look around at the way we're currently doing things and think, how could we do this better? And then question what you're doing and come up with uh, another solution. Well said. Now, is there any belief involved in that? Because I hear yeah. belief involved in yeah. that. Yeah. So, you, I guess you're believing that there is a more efficient or better exactly. way. Exactly. Yes. So, there you are. Skepticism and belief. Now, we're not talking about religious belief, but we don't have to. This is just on the ground <laughs> application of something. If you're going to apply something, it generally points to a belief that that something can have a, a measurable or uh, an emotional, affective result. And why? Because you believe that that's probably a better way. <laughs> <laughs> so they're both right there. They're packed in together. And so how do you think we make those decisions? Is it based purely on result? Well, let's, let's, going back to your example, now I'll hop to something else because actually the continuous improvement model, the business model is in all of the academic realms as well. Um, ask it again. Do you think it can have a result? So how, when we're, when we're talking about our beliefs and our, and how being skeptical plays into them, how do we make those decisions? Because what you see is people come to radically different decisions based off of their, how, what they believe and how they're skeptical. Well, there you are. There's the, is there a balance? How you make the decisions? Well, let's see, it's going to be based on economics, which is not always the best reason to make a decision. Certainly economics is what have, has, with inaccurate information sometimes as what led us to argue that we we just can't move too fast in dealing with global climate crisis because after all it's going to affect jobs well everything has affected jobs since pre-industrial revolution to industrial revolution we seem to believe that the industrial revolution was really fine well um, <laughs> you know so so that's just one thing economics uh, I don't believe it because I don't want to. <laughs> there's, there's the, because I just can't confront my own preconceptions enough to change. Or I want to believe that this can be better and therefore I'm going to apply it. I think that there's so many clusters of things that affect us as we apply our skepticism and, and try to use 
what Heidegger and and Hegel in their various ways were saying to take the preconceptions that lead us to something and to eradicate the preconceptions that take us into dead ends. Yeah, I think that decisions about what we believe and how we apply skepticism is is difficult because people don't use just one um, informing factor, right? If it was all results-driven, we'd come to much different, we'd apply skepticism much differently than we do if we make decisions based off of ideations, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, what we would wish was true or, you know, all of these different sorts of things. So do you think that any form of belief requires faith? Yes, if we're using faith in the loosest possible sense of a, a somewhat structured hope that what we are being told is accurate. And this, that, that question on, on face value sounds pretty straightforward but that has big implications for philosophy because you know you think of belief and faith it, it sort of conjures religious imagery but if you apply it to science right if i believe if the earth is round do i have to have faith that the earth is round? no no because faith implies a certitude that is unquestioned this is where there's a difference between, however mild it might be, between belief and formalized faith. Faith urges not questioning, accept the word because the word is right, except that this is, this is what it means. And even you know, depending on which branch of religions across the planet you're, you're talking about, there are practitioners who say, no, we're finding out new things every day from archaeological digs to texts that didn't exist to, to the fact that if we look back through the five different translations of this particular book, we realize that it's unclear what this was really saying, as opposed to the evangelical leader who may be saying, this is exactly what the Bible means, or this is exactly what the Quran means, or, you know, as soon as you're at that exactitude moment that can be questioned, then you're in faith territory, not skepticism so my next question would be that then don't we all have to reach that point at some point because we talked about early in the episode right that we everything springs from some preconce preconceptions right yes so if we all have to operate from some base some base beliefs mm -hmm. Do those beliefs require faith, right? And well, I think it's the easiest with metaphysics, right? Talking about the universe, right? Mm -hmm. So if we look at, you know, okay, the, the Big Bang model of cosmology, right? So 14 billion years ago, there was a Big Bang and everything spread from that. Does that belief require faith? No, because if it required faith, then there would be no more questioning. I mean, that's the simple answer. Now let me make it a little more complicated. People of faith who question sacred text, question to try to find out more accurately what the information might mean. And that, they're really, then they're moving away from faith <laughs> into a, a mild but important academic skepticism. Belief implies more of a transience. I believe this for now until it's proven not, not so. I believe it, why? Because of this stack of evidentiary material, which I've been told about because I can't, I can't do that all myself. I rely on some authority, and authority is important in knowledge. So, I have a belief that that seems to be accurate, at least for now. And I have a belief that it will probably change <laughs> because we continue to find knowledge. People of faith say, well, this is what it is, what it is, what it is, because it is. And, and there's a staticness that can settle in with that. 
but people of faith who question the sources of their own faith, and that sometimes leads them to be even more faithful, there's a dy dynamic activity going on there that faith by itself does not invite. Hmm. So there's this relationship between faith and belief. I tell you, because this, I was reading your article this morning, right? And you and I talked about it last week when we were talking about authority. Um, you know, 100, 200, 300 years ago, um, it was easy for lay people to understand most processes, you know, and going back to the Middle Ages when you had the polymaths and there was the last man to know everything, right? <laughs> You could you could know everything, you know, the the entire body of human knowledge. And now we've reached a point where I was reading an article this today um, where they're talking about how the universe shouldn't exist. Right. Because <laughs> these certain scientists, you know, they ran this experiment with protons and antiprotons inside some sort of specially constructed electromagnetic cage in order to stop the antiparticles from disintegrating, you know, you know yes. disintegrating and doing all this stuff. And they found that. Man, there's really, um, you know, when the universe started, there should have been a perfect balance of matter and antimatter that completely annihilated itself, and there should be nothing. And so the article was very long and very um, scientifically yeah. focused, yeah. Yeah. you know. Yeah. And I read the whole thing, and I understood it, right? Um, but I still got to the end and realized, okay, I understand the basic science behind this. But what actually went in, they spent 10 years just constructing this electromagnetic cage in yeah. which to put antiprotons in order to stop them from decaying. Yeah. The specific science that went into doing any single step in this is so far beyond my ability mm -hmm. to even comprehend it. Yeah. So I can believe what they're saying because there's some logical steps. But am I still having faith in the scientific process? Well, there? only, only uh, again, I would say only if you say that there is no questioning necessary. And you just belied that by saying, I'm thinking about it. I know that there seems to be some logic here, but this stuff is beyond me. But I believe because of the authority of the people who are involved. But that doesn't mean I believe that they are. There's nothing. There's nothing new to learn from this. Now this the accelerator went, did its job, and no, we don't believe that. And now I'm going to be wacky just because it's fun. I have said since since the emergence of of of, of, a, of, of a certain orangish fellow that that uh, upon his. Uh, uh, rise, we went through a rift in the universe, and we arrived in an alternate universe. Well, the very fact that some of his people could talk about alternate facts, which are not things that exist, <laughs> that could, you know, if, if I had a glass of wine and, 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 and we're relaxing, could convince me that it's possible that we really did go through a rift in the universe. Well, that's not just a strange thought if you think about quantum physics and, and so on. Well, I don't know, maybe, maybe when they flipped that switch and everybody said, oh, well, there was a large percentage of chance that we might have just ceased to exist. Well, maybe we didn't. Maybe we just found a different place. <laughs> that's the speculative fiction. That's the science fiction. That's that's the fun. That's the smoke blowing up my my ears <laughs> uh, to some extent, but not entirely. So, but I don't believe it's a conspiracy. I don't believe it's <laughs> a design or anything like that. Yeah, and you know what? And it's well, it's like you said earlier. It is playful, but it's just as important as it is playful. And I don't think that it is blowing smoke, right? Because we have, we, part of philosophy is looking at every postulation and thinking, okay, well, is there some sort of logical merit to this? Yes. Right? Yes. Alternate facts. It sounds ridiculous. But like we we're talking about earlier, well, knowledge is constantly changing and things are constantly eroding and changing. So, well, I guess if something, was in the realm of a fact at one point, then new knowledge came and it was gone. Does that make an alternate fact? No, well, no, it makes it a previous fact. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, could something that's not a fact now eventually 
come into the realm of being like, a fan. Like light speed being broken? Right, yeah. No, so, no. so, yeah, you know, obviously, I'm not making any sort of political statement here. No, that's, but, not, that's not the point. Right, but the point is, we're just looking at these... Any Anything that comes up, that's, like you said, thinking, if you want it to be, is very hard work. Yeah. And it's very important work. And sometimes you will think about something and it will come across a way that you did not originally think was possible, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so, um, and part of that is skepticism. Part of it's questioning, you know? And uh, that intersection of, you know, how faith informs beliefs how we justify beliefs what we can consider knowledge and then how we question that knowledge or are skeptical about that knowledge not only are all of those things just vastly important but the language behind how we ascribe meaning to each individual one is also yes it is that's so deep that's an important um, point and we've talked about knowledge in the past and i'm sure that you know, I feel I feel like this conversation is sort of leading into a deeper discussion of some of these things that we've talked about in this one. I do too. So um we'll probably get into those next week. But until next time, keep on going.